There are no conflicts of interest associated with this presentation today, and to introduce our speakers is Brian Marsh, who is the Section Chief of Infectious Disease and International Health. Brian, tell us about our program today. All right. Whoops, I'm sorry. Oops, sorry. Uh, we did reverse. All right. Yeah, welcome, everyone. So today we're excited to have a presentation on the latest outbreak of leptospirosis in puppies in Hanover. No. Uh, no. You're good to go with that, right? <laughs> right. Now, so um, we have a, a catchy title, uh, but an exciting presentation. Uh, the Resurgence of Sexually Transmitted Diseases in New England and the Clinical Imperative for Appropriate Testing and Treatment. So we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases. And uh, for the presentation, we have an exciting duo um, of Dr. Ben Chan starting, followed by Dr. Phil Chan. And yes, they are related. Uh, two brothers um, went into infectious disease. I don't know how many pairs uh, of such there are in the US. They're the only ones I know. Um, so Ben, people know um, from his time here. Um, both Ben and Philip uh, actually got their MD degrees at uh, University of Vermont. And they're both New Hampshireites, actually, originally, both from Concord. Uh, then they did part ways for um, subsequent to that. Uh, ben came to Dartmouth and did the rest of his training here at Dartmouth, residency, ID fellowship, LPMR, while Philip went down to Brown and uh, completed his training down in Brown. Um, currently, uh, Ben, after finishing his fellowship, uh, signed on at the state of New Hampshire as the state epidemiologist. Uh, he has recently re-engaged in clinical care and is uh, doing some work in the infectious disease clinic. His main position, though, is as the state epidemiologist for the state of New Hampshire. Uh, Philip, on the other hand, uh, is still at Brown and is an assistant professor at Brown and is very active in uh, STI work, HIV work, PrEP at Brown, the medical director, basically for everything to do with STIs, HIV, and PrEP uh, out of Miriam. Um, with that, I'm going to stop with the two speakers. I uh, don't want to take too much time. I uh, just wanted to say that there is one unique difference between Ben and Philip, and that that's Philip won one of the more prestigious awards available in the state of Rhode Island as one of the 25 most cool, I believe it is, right? Uh, in, <laughs> one of the 25 coolest individuals in the state. Um, <laughs> I, ben, no competition. <laughs> there, there is no such award, or he clearly, for New Hampshire, he clearly would have won it. Um, but, so Ben is going to lead off and is going to tell us largely about um, STD, STI epidemiology for the state of New Hampshire, and then Philip is going to fo follow up and talk to us more about clinical aspects of the STDs. Great, thank you. Hope you all can hear me. And let's see, how do I get this up on the... Uh... There's some button I'm supposed to push. It's not just me. Ah. No. Thank you. <clears throat> Great. Thanks so much. So I'm going to start off this presentation and talk for about 25 or so minutes, and then my brother is going to take over. 
Um, it's always a little bit difficult coordinating two presentations at the same time, so I'll, I'll try to stay on, on track here and not run over. But as uh, Brian mentioned, we're talking about sexually transmitted diseases. I'm going to start off by really talking about the background and the epidemiology of the three main sexually transmitted diseases uh, that have been talked about more recently, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And then my brother's going to take over and talk about uh, some of the screening and treatment guidelines. And I'm going I'm to show you a lot of graphs and a lot of data um, th as my, through my work as it, at the health department. And I just want to acknowledge um, first up that a lot of the stuff I'm going to show you is the work of multiple people here um, at the Department of Health as well as uh, doctors that work at DHMC through the LPMR residency program, Dr. Talbot, who's in the infectious disease department here and is the deputy state epidemiologist. So the work I'm about to show is really the um, effort of, of many people. So three main take-home points. <clears throat> Ask, test, and treat. Uh, it's important for clinicians uh, to control the outbreak, if you will, of sexually transmitted diseases that we're seeing to take thorough sexual histories. Now that's important um, to determine one who is at risk and who needs to be tested, uh, and also to ask about the type of sex that people are having, because asking about the type of sex is gonna uh, guide the type of testing that is done um, to determine what types of clinical specimens are obtained. Uh, for example, in men who have sex, men who have sex with men, uh, it's not just urogenital testing that needs to be done, it's oral pharyngeal, it's rectal um, testing, and it's not just chlamydia and gonorrhea. Those who test positive are at higher risk, or those who have higher risk sex also needs to be tested for uh, syphilis and HIV, and we will talk more about that. And then treatment needs to be according to the latest CDC guidelines. Now, the CDC guidelines have changed over the years. Uh, the most recent guidelines are update, were updated in 2015, and it's important to refer to those uh, because um, appropriate treatment is necessary to adequately treat and cure infections, prevent spread of STDs, and prevent emergence of resistance. This is particularly important when it comes to gonorrhea, as I will talk about. So the clinical syndromes for chlamydia and gonorrhea are very similar. We're going to talk about them uh, together here. Uh, many infections are asymptomatic, so unless you are asking and taking sexual histories and screening appropriately, uh, a sizable proportion of cases will be missed. For those who do develop symptoms, oftentimes it's urogenital disease, so urethritis, cervicitis in females. Uh, males can go on to develop epididymitis and prostitis. For individuals that are engaging in oral and rectal sex, uh, pharyngeal and um, rectal infections are common, and then people can develop ocular infections. <clears throat> um, the medical complications of chlamydia and gonorrhea should be familiar to us all. Uh, for those who go untreated, uh, women especially can develop uh, ascending uh, re reproductive tract infections, so pelvic inflammatory diseases becomes a risk. People can develop chronic uh, pelvic pain, ectopic pregnancies, uh, infertility in both males and females. And then chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis all increase the risk of transmission of HIV. Uh, for pregnant women who are infected with chlamydia and gonorrhea at the time of uh, delivery, they can transmit these infections to their infants. And then with gonorrhea, uh, there's the possibility for disseminated infection. And the picture on the right is showing a skin lesion from someone who has a disseminated gonococcal infection. So let's talk a little more about chlamydia trachomatis. Uh, this is a picture from the CDC showing that chlamydia is an intracellular bacterial pathogen. It is the most commonly reported sexually transmitted disease <clears throat> in New Hampshire and nationally. This is a graph of New Hampshire data uh, showing the number of cases by year. You can see that in New Hampshire, the, the number of chlamydia cases has slowly increased uh, over the last 10 or 15 years. In 2016, we had upwards of uh, close to 3,500 cases. Now, ideally, we would like to call and follow up with 
everybody who's diagnosed with chlamydia or gonorrhea, but that's not possible with our resource limitations at the health department. And so we largely lack risk information on individuals that have been diagnosed with uh, chlamydia um, due to the, the number of cases that we have. Now, it's not just New Hampshire. This is a slide looking at uh, the six uh, most immediate New England states, New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. And you can see that chlamydia has been increasing uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, really across New England. Now, New Hampshire, as I mentioned, had about 3,500 cases. You can see uh, Massachusetts has had upward of 25,000 cases. And this is a huge burden of sexually transmitted infections. And this has been occurring across all states. We know in New Hampshire that uh, chlamydia is most common in females. <clears throat> The graph in the upper right is showing that about two-thirds of chlamydia cases in New Hampshire are diagnosed in females. This has been relatively stable over the last few years. Uh, the lower left-hand graph is showing the rate of chlamydia separated by male and female. And in 2016, the rate of chlamydia in females was about double that um, compared, compared to males, uh, with some slowly increasing trends seen. Now, chlamydia is mostly diagnosed in women, uh, women and, in, in, and in individuals in their early 20s. Uh, this is expected, I think, and is consistent with what's being seen nationally, largely, I think, because there are screening guidelines to screen, routinely screen women who are under the age of 25. Uh, and so you see that the majority of individuals, in fact, are under the age of 25 who are diagnosed with chlamydia. Um, moving on to Neisseria gonorrhea or gonorrhea. Uh, it's the second most commonly reported STD after chlamydia. It's a gram-negative intracellular diplococci, as is shown on the right here. The concern with gonorrhea is its propensity to develop resistance uh, to antibiotics. And in 2011, there was a paper published by a group out of Japan where they found high-level resistance to ceftriaxone. And uh, as will be discussed more, ceftriaxone is one of the end-line antibiotics that we have to treat gonorrhea. And so this group really questioned whether we were entering an era of, you know, quote, untreatable gonorrhea because of the emergence of resistance. We have seen, and this is data from the CDC, that over the years, gonorrhea has uh, become resistant to many of the antibiotics that we have used. So resistance to tetracyclines like doxycycline is upwards of 25% of um, gonorrhea isolates, which is why doxycycline is no longer recommended as first-line treatment for um, gonorrhea. Uh, quinolone resistance has increased. And, and even some of the antibiotics we have now that are um, the first-line antibiotics, the cephalosporins, and the um, macrolides like azithromycin, we're starting to see some trends for increasing resistance. So it becomes concerning then that um, with the increasing rates of gonorrhea, which I'll show you that uh, the, the um, possibility of, of resistance is, is concerning. So the CDC in 2013 released an antibiotic resistance threats report where they classified a number of infections according to their seriousness of um, resistance threat. Uh, concerning versus serious versus urgent. And you can see that the CDC classified drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea in the top three, along with C. diff and carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteriaceae. Now, C. diff is here not because of emerging drug resistance, but because antibiotic use is driving um, a lot of the C. diff that we see. Gonorrhea is here because not because we have seen huge numbers of untreatable gonorrhea in the country, uh, but because it's common. It's the second most commonly reported STD and it's shown a propensity to develop resistance. So this is really ha has been on our radar. And then in January of this year, we released a health alert network message, which hopefully you all received, um, showing that, or, and, and communicating that we were seeing a gonorrhea outbreak. Now we had released an earlier um, <clears throat> Han health alert network message 
in August of 2016, alerting clinicians to the fact that numbers were increasing, encouraging more appropriate testing and, and treatment. Um, and we've seen the numbers go up since, which, which may or may not be appropriate. But you can see between 2007 and 2013, we had a pretty steady baseline and, and on average had about 130 cases per year of gonorrhea reported to the health department. That began to increase in 2014 and 2015. And in 2016, it really took off. And there's actually more than 465 cases reported to us, which is about a 260% increase uh, above the prior stable baseline. Now, this has been occurring, again, like chlamydia across New England. You can see multiple states uh, have been seeing increasing numbers of uh, gonorrhea. New Hampshire has had the highest rate of increase out of any state in New England. Uh, and so we were wondering why. Oh, and it's not just the uh, increase in gonorrhea that we were concerned about. We were also seeing poor treatment of gonorrhea. So this is a, a table looking by county and by year. So for all of 2016 and for the first eight months of 2017, looking at the percentage of individuals diagnosed with gonorrhea who were either, one, not treated appropriately, or two, uh, needed some sort of public health intervention to be treated appropriately. Now, as a health department, we get reports of everybody diagnosed with gonorrhea. We follow up to make sure that they have appropriate treatment. And if they're not treated appropriately, um, not, either not treated or not treated appropriately, we follow up with a clinician to make sure that they, they, that they get into care and, and get the appropriate antibiotics. And so the percentage of individuals who were not treated appropriately or required us to contact a healthcare provider to get them into care was quite high. More than one in four individuals in, in 2016 required some sort of public health intervention to receive the appropriate treatment. <clears throat> now, with the increasing numbers of gonorrhea, the high um, percentage that were not receiving treatment according to the most current CDC guidelines, that obviously raised concern that the uh, possibility of emergence of resistance uh, could be out there. And so we set about to do a more intensive investigation. I will mention, though, that um, since we've started that investigation, the, the numbers have improved. Um, you can see that most counties have shown improvement in treatment of gonorrhea. There are some, some differences here. So Belknap County, for example, there were only a total of 13 cases diagnosed in all of 2016, but already in 2017, they've had 21 cases. So we're still talking about relatively low numbers, but you can see that not only are the numbers starting to increase, but the uh, appropriate treatment has not improved. Um, so there are some areas which are still of concern where we can perhaps target further intervention. So we set about at the end of 2016 and through 2017 to, to do a more intensive investigation. Um, one was to target healthcare provider messaging and education to ensure that providers were appropriately testing for STD screening and then treating. As you can see, we've seen some improvements already. Uh, and then two, we set about to interview everybody who was diagnosed with gonorrhea so that we could determine what population was impacted, what their risk factors were, uh, and to try and identify sex partners in order to, con to connect the sex partners with care and treatment. So this is a map looking at the rates of gonorrhea by county. Overall in 2016, the rate of gonorrhea was about 34 cases per 100,000. And you can see that there's some, some counties so far in, in 2017 or even above that, Hillsborough County, uh, in particular, Manchester has had uh, one of the highest rates of gonorrhea in, in the state. Belknap County is on our radar um, because of increasing rates. Back in 2016, the rate was only about 10 cases per 100,000, so that's really um, jumped up. <clears throat> Interestingly, the majority of gonorrhea cases are occurring or being diagnosed, I should say, at um, emergency room and urgent care facilities. More than 50% of gonorrhea diagnoses are happening 
um, in the urgent care or ER setting, uh, a lesser, a smaller percent percentage in private care offices, and then interestingly, very few are being diagnosed in sexually transmitted disease clinics. And I'll, I'm going to come back to that at the end as to why that is. We used to have 20 different STD clinics around the state that were funded. Uh, we're down to two right now because of uh, funding issues. So New Hampshire's gonorrhea increase is disproportionately affecting males. Um, more than 70% of gonorrhea cases have in, in 2016 um, are in males, and that's an increase uh, from where it was even just five years ago, uh, as shown in the graph in the upper right-hand corner. In the lower left, you can see the rate of gonorrhea, again, divided by male versus female. <clears throat> and you can see the disproportionate increase that's been occurring uh, in males. In fact, the rate in 2016 was two and a half times higher in males than in females. So we're talking about potentially a different population than what's um, impacting uh, um, than chlamydia. Uh, gonorrhea is largely affecting individuals under the age of 40, so people in their 20s and 30s. You can see the highest rates really are in, are in the 20s, and it starts to taper off, but there's a sizable number of people who are in their um, 30, 30 to 40s who, who have been diagnosed with gonorrhea. So we set about to interview all individuals, and, and so we asked about a number of risk factors, sexual risk factors. We asked about sex partners. Uh, we asked about drug use. Um, here we're showing that uh, the majority of individuals who have been diagnosed with gonorrhea um, are heterosexual. In fact, about more than 60% were, were heterosexual. Only about 19% reported uh, men who have sex with, uh, in, being in the group of men who have sex with men, or MSM. Uh, we asked about condom use. Condom use, as expected, is very poor. More than one in four reported never using condoms, and pretty much the rest uh, reported only um, intermittently using condoms. We asked about drug use and sex. Uh, we were interested if this was if there was any intersection between the opioid epidemic and, in and injection drug use, and the outbreak of gonorrhea and the increase of sexually transmitted diseases. And perhaps the colors don't show up as well on the screen here, but. Only 6% reported injection drug use, although a total of more than one in four reported some type of drug use, and that includes um, substances like marijuana. Um, more than one in 10 reported sex while being um, drug impaired. You can see, obviously, that there was a high percentage of people, 51, 50 to 60% of people that refused to answer this question when we interviewed them. <clears throat> so you know, take these numbers with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, we asked about the sex partners of individuals diagnosed with gonorrhea. Um, more than one in four reported anonymous sex partners, and of those who reported anonymous sex partners, you know, just over half were heterosexual, so consistent with sort of the, the general trends that we've seen in the state. <coughs> we asked about the number of sex partners. So the graph in the bottom left is showing the, the number of individuals diagnosed with gonorrhea uh, split by the, the uh, reported number of sex partners in the prior 60 days. And you can see that, well, the majority um, or a, the, a majority um, reported only single sex partners, still more than 30% when you add up these numbers, more than 30% reported uh, two or more sex partners in the prior 60 days. So there's a sizable por uh, proportion that are having anonymous sex, you know, multiple sex partners, uh, which is likely contributing to the spread of uh, STDs. So <clears throat> that was just a very brief overview of a lot of data that we've collected. Um, but I think one of the takeaways from this is that Hillsborough County, in particular Manchester, has one of the highest rates of infection of gonorrhea. Uh, the majority of cases, interestingly, are being diagnosed at emergency room and urgent care facilities. And that, that has served um, as a starting point for us to reach out to some of these facilities to do more provider um, education and training. What we found is that a lot of times at urgent care facilities, providers will do the gonorrhea, the chlamydia test, it'll come back positive. 
Um, but there isn't necessarily a follow-up plan or a follow-up plan to test for syphilis, to test for HIV, which is important. Um, heterosexual males and individuals under the age of 40 are most commonly impacted. We know that condom use is poor, and there's the possibility here for the role of integrating substance misuse programs with infectious disease interventions, and this is something we're interested at, obviously talking with the Manchester Health Department about um, whether there can be some, some um, um, merging of, of you know, substance misuse and infectious disease programs. And then appropriate treatment of gonorrhea has improved, but there's still, there's still room and need for improvement. So we have been tracking um, gonorrhea by month, and this is a graph that was um, created by Dr. Megan Gallagher, who's an infectious disease fellow and LPMR resident. <clears throat> this is the statistical process control chart, which many of you, uh, I think, likely are familiar with, and it shows the number of gonorrhea cases by month going back to 2012. The green line is the um, average number of cases per month and the red lines are the upper and lower control limits. And you can see that in the beginning of 2017, uh, 2016, excuse me, there was a, a notable and uh, significant increase uh, in the number of gonorrhea cases. Uh, that bumped up in, in mid-2016. This was around the time we released a health alert network message alerting clinicians to the fact that gonorrhea was increasing. That may have, may have had something to do with the further um, bump up. But you can see that the, the numbers of gonorrhea diagnoses by month have been relatively stable over the course of our investigation. <clears throat> when you break this down uh, by more granular, granular geography, however, you can see that there are some differences. Uh, Manchester has shown over the last few months a general decrease in gonorrhea cases diagnosed per month, whereas Nashua, the last um, couple of months, have, have seen more of an increase. Now, is this good? Is this bad? Are, are people testing less and so we're detecting it less? Are we testing more in Nashua and so we're detecting it more? It's hard to say. Um, but there are some interesting trends that are occurring. And when you look at it by county, there are some counties, I mentioned Belknap County, that is starting to show increases. And so this, this uh, information is, is guiding, I think, where we're going to be doing more um, targeted interventions. <clears throat> we talked briefly about syphilis. <clears throat> syphilis is a spirochete. Um, it's an old infection. They're all old infections. Um, the... Uh, Initial symptoms of syphilis, uh, primary syphilis oftentimes is, is a painless ulcer that may go unnoticed. Um, the ulcer can occur at the site of inoculation. So that can be a genital ulcer, that can be an oral pharyngeal ulcer if people are having or oral sex, be a rectal ulcer, um, oftentimes goes unnoticed. And if it's not picked up and treated, uh, syphilis can go on to uh, a secondary stage where you have dissemination of the spirochete bacteria. Oftentimes people will have a rash, and the rash can, can vary in morphology, but Usually it's uh, thought of as a maculopapular rash. Rash usually begins on the trunk and proximal extremities. Um, involvement of the palms and soles is characteristic as is uh, seen in the picture on the right here. With dissemination of the bacteria, you have low-grade fever and flu-like illness. Um, mucosal lesions and adenopathy can be common. And you can really have any organ involvement at this stage of infection. So you can have central nervous system infection. You can have eye infection, liver, gastrointestinal. Um, people can present with many different varied symptoms. If it's not treated, uh, syphilis can go on to develop an asymptomatic latent phase, and we separate this by early latent and late latent. Uh, late latent is defined as, you know, infection occurred more than a year prior, early latent as within a year. And, and this is relevant because those who are in the early latent phase have a higher risk of relapse uh, and spirochetemia. And then people that are not treated um, 5, 10, 30 years later can go on to develop symptoms of tertiary syphilis. In fact, about one-third of untreated cases will develop late complications of tertiary syphilis, which involve 
uh, cardiovascular manifestations like aortitis, uh, neurosyphilis, uh, gumas, as is shown on, on the right uh, here. Women can also transmit syphilis to infants uh, in utero, even years into the disease, uh, even during the latent phase. And that's obviously of concern because uh, congenital syphilis can cause stillbirth, stillbirth or newborn death in up to 40% of babies um, born to women with untreated syphilis. Babies that, that don't die can, can go on to have you know, skeletal um, malformations. And so with the increase nationally in syphilis, <clears throat> they've also noted an increase in congenital syphilis, as is shown on the right here. That's national data. So New Hampshire, th these are... Um, graphs looking at primary and secondary syphilis, so the first two stages of syphilis, and this uh, serves as an indicator for new infections or the incidence of new infections. <clears throat> and you can see that across the board, um, there have been increases in syphilis throughout all New England states, including New Hampshire. Now, we still have a relatively small number of cases, upwards of uh, 35 or 40 cases, compared to states like Massachusetts that have had, you know, 500 cases or Rhode Island um, that have had double, double R number. Uh, but the fact that is that the, the trend is increasing. You know, syphilis primarily is still in males. Um, Showing on the graph on the right, you have uh, the number of cases in males versus females graphed out. But the number of cases in women in New Hampshire is slowly increasing. Uh, in fact, in 2017 so far, 14% of syphilis cases um, have been diagnosed in females. And that's an, that's an increase from where it was even about five years ago. And that's obviously concerning because if syphilis gets into the um, female population, the heterosexual population, the risk for congenital, congenital syphilis goes up. And I think the last time we had a case of congenital syphilis in New Hampshire was back in 2012. So um, not, no congenital syphilis recently, but that obviously is of concern to us. Um, <clears throat> syphilis in New Hampshire is still mainly occurring in the um, MSM population. More than uh, two-thirds of individuals diagnosed in 2017 so far this year uh, reported um, being in the MSM group. And it's most commonly, again, similar to gonorrhea, being diagnosed in people in their 20s and 30s, although there's a number who are into their 40s and 50s that are uh, developing or being diagnosed with syphilis. So overall, in summary, um, we know that STDs across New England and in New Hampshire um, are increasing at a concerning rate. Uh, different populations are, are being impacted, but testing really needs to be comprehensive and based on taking a thorough sexual history to ascertain risk. And in the last just few minutes here, I just want to say that um, at the health department, we have limitations in our ability to control the spread of STDs. So prior to July of 2011, I'm not sure if you can see this map very well, we had close to 700,000 in state general funds uh, devoted to supporting uh, combined STD HIV clinics around the state. Uh, and these were really scattered around the state for the purpose of um, improving access. Uh, the, the, the funds meant were, went to support the clinical services. They covered treatment, so treatment was free. Uh, testing was free. People could, could walk into to any of these clinics and get um, free screening and treatment um, with uh, anonymity. <clears throat> and all that went away in mid-2011 when the uh, general funds were cut. And now we only have very limited federal funds um, to support uh, some of the infrastructure in Manchester and Nashua health departments, which still run um, STD clinics, um, but at um, not necessarily free of charge for people to go there. <coughs> the other thing is that um, this is the first seven months of our gonorrhea investigation. And this is a chart sort of showing the success with which 
that we've had with reaching out to people. In the first seven months, we had close to 330 cases of gonorrhea reported to us. So what we would do, we would call once. If they didn't answer, just most of the time, we'd call twice. If they didn't answer, after the second call or, or respond to us, we'd go to their home. And you can see that more than a third required two calls, and then more than one in four required us to actually go to their home to visit them, to get them to talk to us. Now, we can't make people talk to us, but we can pursue them until they do, um, <laughs> which uh, is very time intensive and takes, obviously, a person to, usually a person or two to go to their house. You can see that you know, one in four we had to make a home visit to. And even then, uh, the, the amount of information we got was variable, as you saw. So about 40% um, of the risk factor information we have, uh, or about 40% of patients, uh, reported risk factor information to us. And, we asked, uh, and when we asked for named partners, the response was even less, as you can imagine. Only about 16% of individuals that we actually interviewed named a sex partner to us that we could then go find and connect with care. So uh, because of the cut in um, STD clinics, the time intensity of doing these investigations, we really need healthcare partners <clears throat> to ask and take thorough sexual histories um, to guide testing for not just chlamydia and gonorrhea, but for syphilis and HIV as well. We need providers to treat, uh, test appropriately based on risk factors, right? So we're not just talking about uh, urogenital testing, we're talking about rectal screening, we're talking about oral pharyngeal screening uh, to pick up cases of gonorrhea and chlamydia. And we need treatment according to CDC guidelines. And the most recent guidelines I mentioned was, are from 2015. Um, this is particularly important for gonorrhea, which is developing resistance. Um, and um, the, the treatment guidelines for gonorrhea in particular have changed over the last few years. And so I think I'm going to turn this over to my brother now to talk more about testing and treatment. Thank you. Thanks. So good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Phil Chan, as Brian introduced me. So I'm currently down at uh, Brown University in Providence, uh, but I grew up here in New Hampshire. My parents and obviously my brother still live here in New Hampshire. And I always see, consider New Hampshire my second home, so I'm glad to be back. Um, I serve, I have, similar to many of us, including my brother, I have a couple hats. So I'm situated mainly in the Division of Infectious Diseases within the Department of Medicine. But like my brother, I actually work for the Rhode Island Department of Health, where I serve as their consultant medical director in the Center for HIV and STDs. And similar to my brother, I've also tried to bridge both the clinical medicine and the public health aspects. And we are seeing the exact same trends um, in Rhode Island as we are seeing here in New Hampshire as well. In fact, one of the reasons why I went to Rhode Island and Providence is because they had historically a higher burden of HIV and STDs, um, which is what has been my primary interest and one of the reasons why I went down there but perhaps I could have just stayed here over time. But that being said, um, these trends are across uh, the U.S. and um, certainly concerning. Um, I'm also actually like 80% research funded, so I do a lot of research within the context of HIV prevention and STDs, uh, which is the majority of my interest. I have no conflicts of interest. Um, and I'm not going to, a couple of slides, um, and just to, to really uh, start off where my brother left off, in talking about the importance of STDs. I'm just curious, I know we have a very diverse audience here today, but I wanted to take a quick poll. How many people have actually diagnosed or treated a case of chlamydia in the last couple months? It's a fair number. How about gonorrhea? Syphilis? And how about some of the more um, complex, has anyone ever in the last four or five years seen disseminated gonorrhea? Any cases? Maybe, yeah. How about complications of syphilis, neurosyphilis? How many people have seen neurosyphilis? Yeah. That was something, I did my residency at Brown too, 
2006 or 2009, and I don't remember ever seeing any syphilis cases. So despite whatever department or division you are in medicine, we are seeing more of the complications of, the, of these STDs, so we certainly have to be aware. And in fact, I'm seeing about one case as well as ocular syphilis. Have people seen ocular syphilis too? That's crazy. That's something that I'm guessing in for about a decade or two that many of us hadn't seen. Um, importantly, and as my brother mentioned, all these sort of increase the risk of HIV infection. Um, this occurs through numerous mechanisms. STDs actually increase um, uh, in, in HIV positive people the shedding of the virus, so you have more virus uh, potentially available to uh, susceptible patients. And when people have STDs, they do cause breaks in the mucosa and the genital um, epithelial cells that allow potentially HIV to enter the, um, the person's body more easily. Uh, and we also have STDs increase the concentration of immune cells, because immune cells are fighting HIV infection, of course, and that is more targets for HIV to actually uh, infect. So what are the current clinical recommendations for screening of chlamydia and gonorrhea? Um, all women uh, less than 20 years, uh, 25 years of age uh, should be screened for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, and then women who are other increased risk, and this includes uh, women with new sex partners, greater than one partner, partners with more than one partner, um, or partners with uh, an STD. And then screening in at-risk pregnant women. And these are across all public health and clinical guidelines, including the United States Preventative Task Force. Um, you can see here that uh, uh, both sexually active women um, for chlamydia and, gonor and gonorrhea. You can see for sexually active men, it's actually not, um, there is not a recommendation for routine screening. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But this is actually crazy as you think about it. You just saw data on the amount of men um, with gonorrhea. And so despite these routine recommendations, despite that so many women are being screened, we're actually seeing more cases, especially in gonorrhea. And that was not the case 10 years ago, right, when we had a predominance of women. And many of us, and there's good data across the country, um, but that is largely being driven by gay and bisexual men. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that um, as well. So regarding gay and bisexual men, and this is really a focused population, as my brother showed, for, gay, for both syphilis and especially gonorrhea, um, a lot of these trends in the surveillance, we believe, are being driven by men who have sex with men. And I want to make the point, especially with the surveillance data, a lot of this is based with self-report. And certainly the data, the quality of the data is good, but a lot of times people may be hesitant to report some of their sexual behaviors. Um, being gay or bisexual, having, for guys, having sex with other guys is still stigmatized, and a lot of people may not be willing to admit that behavior. So I think the surveillance data, in my opinion, is probably an underestimate of some of the sexual risk behaviors that we're actually seeing. Um, and there's good data from the CDC and others that show, especially for gonorrhea and chlamydia, that the, in, the increases are largely due um, to increases in gay and bisexual men. So that being said, gain, it's in, as my brother mentioned, um, taking the sexual history is incredibly important, um, identifying sexual behaviors and sexual orientation. And for gay and bisexual men, the recommendations are um, that people, that uh, these men should be screened uh, at least once a year if they're sexually active, um, and three to six months, every three to six months if they're having um, anonymous partners or having different partners every month. And certainly there's a subset of guys that we see that we screen every single month, and that's okay, and we should do that. Um, and then remember, HIV uh, STD testing is preventative in of itself. So how are we doing um, as a country, as a state? So this is some Rhode Island data, but it's similar in New Hampshire. So this is in sexually active young women. Um, and there's, uh, across the insurance world, there's different quality measures. One of these is called HEDIS measures. And these are measures that just, uh, there's a number of different quality control 
um, um, outcomes that they look at. And one of the ones that they look at is chlamydia screening in young women. So how do we do overall? Um, this shows you that across both commercial Medicaid plans, that about 60 to high 60% of sexually active young women um, across given healthcare plans are screened for chlamydia. So that's okay, it's not terrible, but certainly room to improve. Um, and screening in men tends to be a lot less. So one important sort of emerging concept is also uh, the concept of extragenital infections. How many people have tested, performed testing for extragenital infections in the last couple months? Yeah, so a handful. So the concept is this. So historically, when we test for gonorrhea chlamydia, right, we ask patients to urinate in a cup, and then we send that off for NAT analysis, PCR analysis. So what does that test for? That tests for gonorrhea or chlamydia actually of the urethra, right? You're peeing into a cup. So what we know now is that if people are performing oral sex, which is a lot of people, and if people are having receptive anal sex, that you can get gonorrhea chlamydia of your throat or rectum that's not going to be picked up in your urine specimen. And in fact, that's what it shows. And I'll show you some data on that in a second. Um, this is some data we did at our STD clinic uh, across about 200 men, 266 men um, a few years ago. You can see that uh, we, we found about eight infections in the, in the urine, but we missed um, a whole lot of infections uh, both in the oral and the rectal um, cavities. And in fact, overall, everyone had a 20% percent of STDs, and 87% would have been missed by doing just urine testing alone. And this is consistent across, if you look through the literature, this is consistent from other sites as well. So there's being a strong push by the CDC, by others, um, to do extragenital screening, especially in gay bisexual men. In fact, having a rectal STD is one of the highest risk factors for having, um, for, for having HIV. So it's incredibly important, especially in gay bisexual men, to perform rectal swabs um, for gonorrhea and chlamydia. So treatment in chlamydia um, still is azithromycin, one gram, PO once. This is the preferred treatment. Uh, the second line treatment is doxycycline, 100 milligrams of PO for seven days. Um, in our STD clinic and most public health clinics tend to use azithromycin. We have it on, on hand. Um, the one-time dose facilitates compliance, so it's easy, sort of one and done. You can watch the person take it, which is fantastic. Doxycycline may be slightly more effective. There are actually some on ongoing trials in the STD world to actually look at whether doxycycline may be slightly more effective than azithromycin, but regardless, azithromycin still has high degrees of, uh, of treatment. I do see patients once in a while that don't um, respond to azithromycin for various reasons, uh, so we will then do the seven days of doxycycline. In terms of gonorrhea treatment, um, as my brother mentioned, we are seeing significant resistance uh, across the world and uh, somewhat in the U.S., uh, dual treatment is recommended. Cetraxone, 250 milligrams IM once is the treatment of choice, plus azithromycin, one gram, regardless of whether or not they have chlamydia. Of course, the bonus of this approach is that you will also get um, chlamydia if they do have it, which is good. But dual treatment is recommended in all cases uh, uh, for this. Doxycycline is a second-line treatment. However, I will say we do do some resistance testing in our STD clinic and the resistance prevalence for gonorrhea is around 20 to 30% we see even in Rhode Island. So doxycycline is a second line treatment, but we do see a significant amount of resistance for that. Um, back in 2010, 2012, and prior to that, uh, it was uh, still recommended that you could use uh, cefixime, an oral cephalosporin. 
That is not recommended anymore, and I have a slide on that to show you why in a second. Uh, but if ceftriaxone is unavailable uh, for any reason, you can still go to the cefixime um, with the azithromycin as a second-line treatment. Other alternative regimens, um, especially in people that may be pen-allergic, um, azithromycin, two grams. Um, you can just be aware that that's associated with significant side effects, right? A Z-Pack, you tend to be given 250 milligrams of azithromycin. Here, you're given two grams, which is a whopping dose of azithromycin, but it works. Um, in our clinics, what we do for second line is actually gentamicin um, IM for 240 milligram a dose, plus the azithromycin for dual treatment. That's sort of our go-to, uh, but there are some alternative options here. And one important note, and one question that we get all the time, and one thing that people want to do, physicians and others, is to do a test of cure. And test of cure is not generally recommended for either gonorrhea or chlamydia. I'll show, at my next slide, we'll show you why. Um, <coughs> But except in cases where, uh, for, for gonorrhea, pharyngeal infections, and you treat them with an alternative regimen. So that's the only time we'll do uh, test of cure. And the reason for that um, is that when you test for these, uh, when, you, when you check for a test within a couple weeks or a week after, is that sometimes these tests are so sensitive, these are PCR-based tests that are looking for DNA, is that even though the test is cured, these tests may still be positive because you're picking up fragments of the DNA. So that's why generally test of cure is not recommended within general gonorrhea and chlamydia. Um, if someone is still having symptoms, then yes. Uh, and if someone is still having symptoms, and especially for gonorrhea, remember that the NAT testings don't look for resistance. So they'll tell you for the presence or absence of gonorrhea, but if you actually want to look at uh, susceptibilities, you're going to have to take a swab. And that sort of brings us back to the old days for urethral swabs, et cetera. Um, we can sometimes get away if someone's having uh, pus uh, from their penis. We can generally take a little swab um, just around the inside, and we're not shoving anything really deep into the, the urethra, which is not recommended. Um, in terms of resistance, and this is at the national level, but what happened was um, historically people were using cefixime um, in oral cephalosporins. But in, back in 2009 and 10 and 11, we started seeing increasing uh, MICs to specifically cefixime. And this was a warning flag uh, for the CDC and others, um, and because, as my brother mentioned, we've had numerous other uh, antibiotic regimens over time that gonorrhea has developed resistance to. And this was sort of the same trend that people were seeing um, um, in terms of increasing MICs, and the CDC became really worried and others. And so what they did in 2012, they actually recommended, no longer recommended oral cefixime for treatment and started recommending dual regimen for all cases of gonorrhea. And you can see in the subsequent years that the, the MICs for cefixime have come down, um, which is fantastic, and it's still something the CDC is watching closely. The other thing that people are watching closely, of course, is whether gonorrhea is developing azithromycin resistance. And we do see azithromycin resistance. Again, I have about 50 cases of gonorrhea that we cultured last year um, in Rhode Island. We had two cases, um, two cases of azithromycin resistance. And there's been outbreaks described across the world and other places like the UK had a pretty big outbreak of azithromycin resistance. Um, but you can see across the US, we certainly see a small percent of cases, which is why that two gram azithro dose for alternative treatments isn't the best and why we currently pair it with the gentamicin IM as well. This is the current uh, CDC uh, gynecological isolate surveillance project. These are our labs and STD clinics across the US that actually look for this and will send will culture out gonorrhea. You can see the closest one to us is Boston, um, and certainly some others in the Northeast here. And again, 
who do we have to be concerned about resistance in? And it tends to be gay and bisexual men. Um, there's an increasing worry, especially on the West Coast, um, and where we've been seeing the percentage of MICs increase, the suffixing especially, has been among gay and bisexual men in the West Coast. And that will have important implications for a couple other things we'll talk about in a second. So what are some treatment considerations? These are common questions that we get all the time in terms of gonorrhea and chlamydia uh, treatment. So in general, uh, recent sex partners should be referred for testing. Um, so what's recent? So anyone within the last uh, couple months, 60 days. Once treated, individuals should ideally abstain from sex for about seven days. And again, to drive home the point about the retesting, we generally recommend retesting a follow-up for three months. Test to cure is not recommended, except in pregnancy. Um, one thing that kind of drives us a little nuts is when um, people have uh, are test positive for gonorrhea, chlamydia, or syphilis, and there's no concurrent HIV test. So certainly a lot of times these STDs um, come in pairs, so please do test for HIV, especially if you find someone positive for an STD. Um, and then expedited partner therapy is something that a lot of places use too. So that is the ability to actually write a prescription for a patient's partner, a patient who tests positive for gonorrhea chlamydia, to write a prescription for their partner without ever seeing them. Now, as a clinician, that makes me incredibly nervous, um, having you know, given liability and treating someone that you've never seen before. But you can do it in many states. And I didn't realize until I actually um, put this uh, presentation together, New Hampshire is not one of the ones that allows EPT, uh, perhaps something to consider in the future. That being said, that I, use, I tend to use expedited partner therapy as sort of a last line resort, right? So I try to get the patients in, the patient's partners in, to see them and counsel them. You want to test them. You want to test them not just for, for um, gonorrhea chlamydia, of course, but for, other, for HIV and other STDs. So expedited partner therapy, I do it a couple times a year. I don't do it that often. And it's really in cases where there's other barriers or challenges to getting the partner in. I do find, though, that if you can get the patient to tell their partner that they have an STD, that they will generally come right in um, to get tested or treated. So that's good. So that does exist. It is something that um, a lot of public health institutions um, encourage. Again, we do allow it in a number of other states in the Northeast. And this is just some data on why we don't do the test to cure. So this was a study um, that looked at 115 women who were cured of chlamydia, were treated and cured, um, and they checked for uh, the NAT testing um, on days 0, 3, 7, and 14. And what you can see um, is that uh, of the people that cleared, even on day 14, 79% um, of people had a negative test, which means that 21% of people at day 14, despite being cured, uh, still had um, evidence of infection. So this is why we don't generally recommend. You can see that the general time to predict a negative test is about 17 days. And these are people that have truly been cured. So this is why we generally don't recommend a test of cure at seven days, 14 days, et cetera. This is sort of the uh, standard, the gold standard study that really showed that expedited partner therapy works. Um, this was a study of thousands of um, heterosexual men and women at, who uh, were randomized to either just telling their partners to get in versus getting, giving expedited partner therapy to, to their partners. Uh, and what they found was their outcome was testing the patient themselves uh, within a few weeks to several other weeks uh, after. And what they found is that the people who, were, who did have expedited partner therapy were much less likely to come back in with uh, a recurrent or persistent STD. So this was sort of, you know, this was published in New England Journal of Medicine. You can see that this was a more effective um, approach in people that had gonorrhea. 
much more significant difference versus chlamydia, but it was significant overall for both of them. Um, so this is what has allowed states and been the basis for many states um, for pushing out expedited partner therapy guidelines. Actually, Philip, before you move on, if I can just add that expedited partner therapy in New Hampshire is legal now. As part of our investigation, we went before the legislature last season and passed a bill explicitly making expedited partner therapy legal and allowable in New Hampshire. So it is something that clinicians can practice, and that, uh, that map should be updated. Great. <laughs> Will do. Well, you were within, you know, with Kentucky, West Virginia, and South Carolina. It was a, uh, a unique club. I'll leave it at that. Um, in terms of syphilis, what are the current uh, guidelines and screening recommendations for syphilis? Um, persons at increased risk. Um, certainly everyone that's pregnant. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but there's no general screening in terms of the general population for syphilis, um, unless you're pregnant. So the clinicians need to use, people need to use a little bit of their clinical judgment in terms of who to screen. And it really comes down, a lot of it, to um, sexual behaviors and sexual orientations. And again, to drive home the point, gay, bisexual, other men who have sex with men, we're seeing the large majority across the U.S. Um, uh, you may not have seen it, but the Rhode Island spike in Rhode Island, um, when we started to see the exponential increase of um, syphilis in our state, 95% of all cases were among gay and bisexual men. So there's no doubt that that's increasing. Um, and what we were really concerned about, um, as was mentioned, uh, was that starting to spill over now into the heterosexual population, and especially women, and congenital syphilis is becoming um, an increasing concern. The other thing that we've noticed um, down in southern New England is that a lot of this was due to HIV-positive um, gay and bisexual men. So there's this concept of serosorting, which means that when someone's HIV-positive a lot of times, they go out and look for other partners that may be HIV-positive so they don't necessarily have to use a condom. So that's called serosorting. Um, and the problem with that is that it's really facilitating the spread of other STDs, like syphilis. So what we saw, especially Rhode Island, is that 50%, despite HIV, you know, HIV is not that common, it's common, um, but not that common, but we were seeing about 50% of our syphilis cases among HIV-positive gay and bisexual men. Um, that's subsequently come down. It's sort of generalizing now within the gay and bisexual male population um, in, in our state. Um, but early on, it was really being driven by HIV-positive gay and bisexual men, up to 50% of our cases. And we've seen a five-fold increase in syphilis uh, in Rhode Island uh, in the last five or six years. Um, the CDC uh, has also released um, warnings to us that they are seeing uh, congenital syphilis increasing across the U.S. Again, this is usually transplacental, but can happen via the birth canal as well. Um, it can occur at any stage. Uh, again, the CDC does recommend syphilis screening for all pregnant women. <laughs> Like my brother mentioned, there has not been any recent cases in New Hampshire or Rhode Island um, or Maine, but you can see certainly Mass and some of the surrounding states, it is happening, so we certainly have to be aware. Uh, you can also see that the predominance of congenital syphilis is occurring uh, in southern states as well as west coast, places with um, exponentially higher uh, cases of syphilis. I want to talk just briefly about HIV, uh, syphilis screening. So historically, um, the screening algorithm for syphilis has been a non-treponemal test. So non-treponemal uh, uh, non means that you're looking for antibodies that are not directed towards the treponemal organism. So you're indirectly looking for antibodies um, to lipoidal antigens, uh, lipid antigens. These are uh, antigens that are released from damaged cells when cells are attacked by syphilis. 
There's also some of these lipid uh, antigens on the surface of the trepanema organism. So you're t essentially looking for um, indirect antibodies. The good news is that this provides you a quantitative measure um, that declines over time. Uh, these generally have then reflexed to treponemal tests, so that you're looking for direct, specific antibodies against the treponemal organism. Um, the, the thing that's a little bit less useful about these is that they tend to be qualitative. So once you're exposed to syphilis, once you have syphilis, regardless of whether or not you're treated, these antibodies persist over time, and these tests are positive over time. So the key piece of history when you're looking at treponemal tests is, has someone been treated for syphilis in the past? If the answer is yes, um, then you have to look at the non-treponemal test as well. So historically, this has been the algorithm. You start with the non-treponemal test, an RPR, a VDRL. If they're negative, you don't have syphilis. If you're positive, you then have a reflex confirmatory test with a treponemal test. Um, and if that's positive, uh, that indicates syphilis. Uh, we do see a number of false positives with the non-treponemal test because they're non-specific, because they're indirect antibodies. You can see them in other autoimmune diseases. Um, you can see them in other viral and infectious diseases. Um, what's happened now, and uh, as my brother let me know yesterday, is that a lot of places, including in Rhode Island and including in New Hampshire now, have now switched to um, a reverse algorithm. And the reason for that, and what that means, is that the treponemal tests are now the first test. And the reason for that is that they're much more higher throughput. Um, you can automate them. They're consistent with uh, a lot of the different lab protocols. And so this has resulted in a reverse algorithm. So what does that mean clinically, and what are we actually seeing? So remember what I said is the treponemal tests, um, when you, if someone's ever been positive, uh, and even though they've been treated, that they'll be positive. So what we're seeing now, we're picking up a lot of people that have a positive syphilis test, but a negative RPR. And what does that actually mean? So it could mean two things. It could mean that the person was treated and their RPR, the quantitative titers, have declined <laughs> over time. So if you get the piece of history that someone has been treated despite having a positive test, that's good, and you should stop there. Um, some people, uh, you, we do still see false positives with the treponemal test. So if they're negative, if the RPR is negative, um, places will reflex to a third test, a third treponemal test. And this is the way you can think about it as a tiebreaker. So in people that have no history of previously treated syphilis, if they have a first positive test and then they have a second negative test, um, so you're unsure whether or not that represents syphilis, the third test is considered the tiebreaker. If that's positive, then yes, they have syphilis, even though their non-treponemal test is negative. If that test is negative, then they don't have syphilis. The TPEPA, the, um, the uh, particle agglutination test, tends to be a better test, more sensitive than the EIA test, so it is considered um, uh, sort of more of a standard test, although it tends to be more expensive. <laughs> Any questions about the reverse algorithm? When was that implemented here, I think? About 20 years ago. 20 years ago, okay. So you're far ahead of Rhode Island, so good. So syphilis treatment. Um, so in terms of treatment, um, we talk about syphilis in terms of clinical staging a lot of times, um, primary, secondary, latent, um, tertiary. It's actually more important in terms of thinking about treatment of syphilis in terms of time of treatment and time that they have syphilis. So they've had syphilis for one year or less versus one year or more. If they've had syphilis for one year of left or less, they're getting one shot of penicillin G uh, benzathine, um, 2.4 million units. So this is for primary, secondary, or latent syphilis of one year or less. 
I will mention um, in primary syphilis, a lot of times um, the classic presentation is a primary chancre. Um, that's actually pretty rarely seen. We do see that um, occasionally. Uh, but the primary chancre, although it's classically painless um, and can uh, sort of uh, be easily missed, um, the chancre can look like anything. Certainly if you Google chancre and look at pictures of chancres, it's going to be sort of this undulated lesion. Um, but um, it, from reading early uh, texts about syphilis, chancres and the manifestations of syphilis can really appear as anything. It can appear as little dots, as little pimples, um, as little skin tags, um, the whole spectrum of skin manifestations for syphilis. So people that have late latent syphilis, um, we generally treat them with three shots of the penicillin uh, uh, benzathine, one shot uh, one week apart for three weeks. The other important distinction is assessing for neurosyphilis. People that have neurosyphilis, we want to do 10 to 14 days of penicillin G, um, and that is standard practice. The IM um, concentrations of, uh, of benzathine do not lead to sufficient concentrations in the CSF uh, to treat uh, neurosyphilis. And for congenital syphilis, uh, you can see the dosing here with penicillin G uh, for 10 to 14 days. The gold standard, and we still do this, is for pregnant women with syphilis and are allergic to penicillin, is to indeed desensitize them. And we do do this. Um, it is a little bit of a pain. You have to admit them to the hospital, um, many times to the ICU, but we do do this. It's recommended um, also when, after treating for syphilis, it's to check repeat titers at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, and 24 months post-treatment. Um, and successful treatment is, uh, is achieved when there's a full, four-fold decline in titers. So I will say that when I see a lot of sexually active young and gay and bisexual men, um, I'm not waiting for 24 months to see a four-fold decline in the titer. If you look at the studies that have showed this, you're actually see, you should see really uh, an exponential increase of uh, RPR titers after successful treatment. In fact, most people should really be cured, or you should see evidence of cure, um, three to six months after treatment um, for syphilis. So if by six months, and especially some of these younger sexually active gay men, if I'm not seeing um, a test of cure, I retreat until I see it. There are a certain number of individuals that become what's called serofast. It means that they still have evidence um, of syphilis, uh, the non-treponemal. The non-treponemal test, the RPR test, will never come back down to non-reactive. This does happen in a subset of patients, and that's okay. Um, you just want to see that fourfold decline. A lot of patients will sort of hang out in that one to two, one to four region um, uh, uh, level, and you can tell if they're reinfected is if you see a fourfold uh, increase again. And so that's the marker that you would want to retreat if you saw that fourfold increase um, again. In terms of management of partners, um, you do want to, syphilis has a little bit of a longer incubation. You do tend to want to look back 90 days um, for people with primary, secondary, and early late syphilis and to treat them even if seronegative. So one of the key points, um, and we certainly see this, is that people with evidence, I've had people come to me with classic shankers, with secondary syphilis, rashes on palms and hands, with totally negative um, syphilis serologies. So it does happen. So one of my models, of course, is that nothing in medicine is 100%. You have to um, use some of your clinical judgment. So 30% of people with primary syphilis will have negative serologies. So sometimes you just want to treat, especially if there's um, a history of recent exposure uh, to syphilis. But regardless, for the, in the public health world, we tend to um, ask for partners about 90 days back. Um, I will refer people to the 100-page um, STD, CDC treatment guidelines. Uh, everything that we've talked about is really encompassed in these, but they are really thorough, and there's good references and explain the rationale for treatment 
um, for all these diseases. So I will end there. Uh, thank you again for your attention, and it's a pleasure to be back in New Hampshire. in this room uh, to discuss informally HIV prep, which means we do have time to take questions now before we transition to that. Questions for either of our speakers? In the back. back? Yep. Um, thank you for your talk, both of you. I just have a quick question about the retreatment just for people in the audience. Uh, in particular, if it was treated with IV, uh, 14 days, neurosyphilis um, treatment, and if the RPR does not come down, do you recommend the same regimen? If the RPR stays positive? Does it come down fourfold by the six-month period where you recommend retreatment? Do you go back to kind of the IV 14-day <clears throat> Yes, unfortunately, yes. And I probably have to do that in about, in single-digit percents, maybe less than 10%, and re-examination of the CSF would be ideal as well. Thank you. Uh, great talk. My uh, question relates to your the data you presented on the gonorrheal infections. Um, the, the majority of those seem to be in men and heterosexual men. And it sounds like one possible explanation is, Bill, you're thinking that that's probably an underrepresentation of gay and bisexual men in that population. But another might be that um, there are a relatively limited number of women infecting a lot of men which might make one think of prostitution. Is there any, um, are there any efforts being geared towards targeting, treating, uh, testing and treating pockets of prostitutes in major uh, metropolitan areas around? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's something we looked into. So, so when we asked, um, did our investigation, we asked about you know, uh, exchanging sex for drugs, ex exchanging sex for money. And obviously, you know, the, the information that people give us may be relatively limited. We didn't find a lot of that, but there, there have been um, several instances of what you describe of prostitution, um, really more in the, in the southern part of the state. And so that's, that's part of what I uh, referred to when I was talking about you know, looking at how do we do some sort of combined intervention uh, in this, with the city of Manchester, for example. Um, looking not just at gonorrhea, but you know, addressing some of these other um, issues, the opioid epidemic, you know, what we call the, the social determinants of health. Um, that, that's something that we are exploring more, but we have not found a lot of you know, prostitution contributing based on our investigation. Yeah, I think it depends how in detail you want to go. So I tend, I try to normalize some of that conversation in terms of when I'm talking to a um, young person that may be a little bit hesitant to um, uh, discuss their sexuality. I will often say things like, "We've seen a lot of people having anonymous partners. Um, a lot of people may use some of these apps like Grinder, etc." Do you use these apps? Do you use condoms, et cetera? Um, I don't think it's necessarily, it's one of those additional pieces of risk that I think contributes to the overall picture, but the most important thing is what are they doing? Are they using condoms, number of partners, and certainly um, anonymous partners can be one of those risky things, but it's really the condom use, um, drugs, um, alcohol, et cetera, that may contribute to that, to the sexual risk. If you have the time, that would be great to get, but it's not, I wouldn't consider it a necessary piece.
them. You mentioned again uh, that uh, not only do we have epidemic STIs in New Hampshire, but like many states, we have epidemic underfunding. And I'm thinking that this room might be a room of people who might be able to make pleas for better funding that could be you know, better heard than the average person. Can you give some thoughts on how we might try to ask for commonsensical support for your work? Yeah, and, and so th this gets into obviously the some the, the political realm. Um, you know, th there was a, a legislator in New Hampshire that put forward uh, the idea of refunding sexually transmitted disease clinics at the last legislative session, um, and, and that ended up not going anywhere. But you know, it, it's really funding both at the state level and the and the federal level as well. Um, you know, th this is a, an opportunity, I think, to get involved with representatives, the state legislature, the New Hampshire Medical Society, which is involved, um, you know, politically in, in the legislative process with the health department. But it's, it, it, really, it really comes down to, um, for state funding, comes down to the state legislator and, and legislature and the legis legislators in the area. But I will add on to that quickly. What we did in Rhode Island, we had the same exact problem. In 2011, mm -hmm. they closed the state STD clinic. Rhode Island's much smaller. We only had one clinic um, right in Providence. But they closed it. And so there's no places for safety net STD setting. So in 2012, because uh, I felt strongly about it, we actually started an STD clinic. We started an STD clinic within the context of our ID clinic. We basically commandeered a room, myself and um, one of our outreach workers, and just advertised um, at all the on the apps, on the, at the gay sex club venues, et cetera. Um, and we just started testing one afternoon in, in our clinic. Um, and that sort of, and I got the hospital system, our hospital system, so not public health, they agreed to cover STD testing um, because we were testing two or three um, a day, which wasn't a whole lot. What happened was word got out and uh, it exponentially increased from about maybe a couple hundred in 2011 to now seeing 3,000. So in 2014, uh, we were starting to see a couple thousand a year, and we were still actually below the hospital-level radar because they didn't realize how much volume we were seeing, and everything was still free, which is fantastic. <laughs> we then changed computer systems to Epic, and all of a sudden, <laughs> and all of a sudden, there's this huge blip about you know where's all this money going to? So unfortunately, or fortunately, but to create a sustainable system, we did start billing now for all, all of our STD clinic visits. So it's really been a partnership between public health between. Yeah our private hospital system. Um, we now get funding from the Department of Success. Success begets success. Um, you can't now close down an STD clinic that's seeing 3,000 patients a year, a third of which are gay and bisexual men, highest seroprevalence of HIV, with 20% of everyone walking through the door positive from STD, in the midst of an STD epidemic. So for all those reasons, um, you, you just can't close down. Yeah. So the Department of Health then bucked up and gave us some funding. So it's funded in part by a private institution. And I offset some of it because we recruit for all of our research studies there. So it's really funded in part, not really by the NIH, but the staff is partly funded by the NIH. Staff um, is covered by the hospital system and public health. And I think that's a, that's a great example of the need, um, you know, the, the limitations to, to purely relying on the state to, you know, take this on. I think that the partnership here is really key, and it's not, it's not just uh, one organization coming on and, and doing it. It's, it's, really, it's really partnering with community organizations to, to affect population health. Rich, you had a question? I, I did. I was, was going to talk about the uh, apps, though, and so it looks like a lot of these are anonymous. A lot of yeah. people don't talk about their partners, and you know, I, just, I didn't know what you're doing in Rhode Island about dealing with sort of, obviously, you're advertising on the sites, things like that. So how do you nip that stuff? 
Yes. It has to be prevention with condoms and behaviors is important, but, you know, a lot of people are really, truly having a lot of anonymous sex. Yeah, and we were curious about that. So over the last couple of years, we actually interviewed as many um, gay bisexual men coming through the STD clinic to ask them about how many times or how often they meet partners online and if they had. So 97% had. So essentially, everyone is doing it. So we have three things that we've really tried to do. Um, our DIS um, are now outreaching on Grindr and some of these mobile phone apps to engage people that test positive. That was not or has not been be done the last few years. We're starting to do that now. We've also released a number of campaigns um, through Grindr. One of the frustrating things is that they all charge, and they all charge a whole lot of money to advertise for a weekend of free HIV testing um, on Grindr. It costs about $400 for a weekend, so that adds up. So it's not really a sustainable system. But we have some chunks of money through the Department of Health. A lot of times when we have money at the end of the year, we have some money through our Medicaid department as well now. So we're going to do some campaigns. And we recently just started a home-based HIV testing campaign online. So we're, we um, are advertising and directing people to um, a website where we will mail you a free, a free home-based HIV test, the Orshore or Quick, where you can swab yourself. Um, so we're just starting that this month. So we are trying to do a lot more focused efforts online because that is, whether or not you're gay or straight, that is how people are meeting their sex partners a lot of times now. That's a, that's a good opportunity to talk about the work you're doing, Jake, with the Grand State Connect to kind of reach out to people who are either accessing partners online or just need support. Yeah, you're absolutely right that the, the grinder ads are prohibitively expensive. You're right that it's a logical idea to meet people where they're at. So we've had a lot of success uh, with Craigslist ads and, as you mentioned, kind of passive profiles on some of these geo-based dating apps. Uh, and this collaboration with the ID department and the connector that you've been working launched a really cool website where people can get information about the latest and greatest of risk reduction. Um, we're seeing similar concerns. Uh, oh, Rather, uh, we're seeing uh, this epidemiology reflected in people who are answering our ads about um, men and married men who are married to women who have a lot of confidentiality concerns about accessing PrEP and accessing uh, HIV and STI testing. So that, that certainly depends out with uh, who's been answering our ads. But it's certainly hard to get the, the word out in these spaces because people are not on there to get their health education. <laughs> <laughs> trying to get our foot in the door and with some success. And not just married um, men, married to women who maybe have male partners on the side, but also young people, who especially who may be on their parents' insurance that don't want their parents to see the bill for STD testing services. Mm -hmm.